Good morning, Fellowship Alliance Chapel. How are you guys? It's good to see you. Good to be with you. It's good to hear Seth talk about a positive influence that I've had on his life. Uh, That goes both ways. He's had a positive influence on my life. In fact, just this morning, I was trying to decide whether to go tucked or untucked. And my wife said, Seth's going to be wearing a tie. Okay, so what can you do? Seth's going to wear a tie. Now, I got to get some kicks like his, though. Don't you love his shoes? Yeah, so now in all seriousness, I, I thank God for uh, the influence that I see Seth having today and for his love for God's word and his church and uh, just to see what God is doing at your, your church. Let's pray together and then we're going to do a deep dive into God's word. Uh, God, as we come before your holy word, uh, I want to pray especially for those who are wrestling with difficult circumstances in their lives today, God, maybe... Uh, illness of some sort, relational conflict, God. Uh, Maybe there are some who are out of work today. Uh, God, uh, some of us come to church today wondering, God, where are you? And uh, why don't you seem to be responding to my prayers? And so as we dive into your word, I pray that you would give us an answer to that question. I pray that, that you would teach us I pray that we would come away with something, God, that we could put into practice in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the Chosen is a, is a book by Chaim Potok that was later made into an award-winning movie. It's a story about two Jewish boys growing up in Brooklyn just after World War II. Uh, one of the boys, Danny, is a Hasidic Jew, and the other, Reuben, is just uh, uh, just your average Jew living in Brooklyn. And the two boys meet on the baseball field. Uh, they're uncompetitive. They're competing against e- each other. Uh, Danny shows up with his Hasidic Jewish team, so they got on the long black coats and the wide-rimmed hats and the, the curly Q sideburns. And uh, Reuben, again, being just your average Jewish guy, he's dressed normally, and he figures that, that these Hasidic Jewish guys, they don't know how to play baseball. And so, so Reuben is pitching, and he pitches a real fat pitch to Danny. What's he going to do with that? And Danny drills it back at Reuben, breaks his glasses, shatters his glasses. Reuben has to be taken to the hospital, and Danny later goes to apologize to Reuben. And they become fast friends. And Reuben starts spending time at Danny's home. Danny, uh, Danny's dad is a much revered Hasidic rabbi by the name of Reb Saunders. Reb Saunders. And one of the things that Reuben notices in the home, the dynamics between dad and son are kind of strange. Uh, Reb Saunders doesn't speak to his son Danny. Never. Never says a word gives him the silent treatment. And as the movie goes on, you, you learn that the reason Reb Saunders is doing this is he's concerned about his son. Danny's a brilliant student. He's got a photographic memory. He's a bit on the arrogant side. And Reb Saunders wants to humble him. He wants to make sure that Danny grows up to uh, be able to experience the pains and the struggles of other people. And so he gives them the silent treatment. But the, the silent treatment backfires. You know, instead of teaching Danny compassion for other people, he grows up wondering, does his dad love him? I mean, what what kind of a dad gives his son the silent treatment? Now, that's a question that we're going to wrestle with today, not in terms of earthly fathers and their kids, but in terms of our heavenly father. 
You know, have you ever been in difficult circumstances going through a tough time and, and you've wondered, does God care? Uh, you've been praying about something for days, for, for weeks, and uh, heaven seems to be silent. There's no response. What do you do when God is silent? Well, welcome to week five of a six-part series here at Fellowship Alliance Chapel called Praying the Psalms. And today, we're going to take a look at Psalm 77. So if you brought a Bible with you, would you turn with me to Psalm 77? Uh, This is a psalm of lament. A psalm of lament. What does that mean? Uh, Here's how one Bible scholar defines lament. He says, lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Let me say that again. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain on, on the one hand and the promise of God's goodness on the other. In other words, all the bad things in our lives seem to contradict God's claim that he truly loves us and cares about us. And so a psalm of lament cries out, what's going on, God? You know, why aren't you listening to my prayers? Why are you giving me the silent treatment? Now, if you're under the impression that it's inappropriate, maybe irreverent to speak to God like that, you may be surprised to learn that a full third of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament. And the psalm writers weren't the only people in the Bible who dared to question God about his silence. The the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk exclaims in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Or cry out to you, but but you don't save? You remember Job, the long-suffering guy with all the horrific problems. He prays to God. Job 31 verse 35, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. Let the Almighty answer me. I mean, even Jesus hanging on the cross, Matthew 27, verse 46, he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I I guess it's acceptable to lament. I guess it's okay to cry out to God, what's going on when you're going through a difficult time and you're not hearing from God? when, When you're out of work for six months and no job seems to be on the horizon, when, when the doctor tells you that the cancer has returned, when your fiance breaks off the engagement a month before the wedding, when you find porn on your husband's laptop or drugs in your, your teenager's backpack, when your parents announce that they're going to get a divorce, a yeah, major crisis causes us to wonder, where is God in all this? I mean, even minor crises can cause us to feel like you know, God isn't paying attention. You know, your best friend misinterprets something you've said and now you're on the outs or you're flunking algebra even though you've given it your best effort or your baby is crying through the night or your boss is demanding things from you that are over the top and you're saying, God, are you there? Well, Psalm 77 teaches us how to lament, how to lament the right way when God is silent. I'm gonna give you three steps today. Okay, here's step number one. Pray. Pray. After all, that's what this series is all about, right? Prayer. Now, if your Bible is open to Psalm 77, you probably note that there is a prescript 
before verse 1. So in my Bible, and I'm using the, the NIV translation, in my Bible it says at the top of Psalm 77, for the director of music for Jeduthun of Asaph, a psalm. So this is a psalm written by a dude named Asaph. It's not one of King David's psalms. Uh, David, as you probably know, David wrote about half the psalms. But this particular psalm was written by David's choir director. He appointed Asaph to direct the choirs at, at Israel's worship center, a tent that they called the tabernacle. And so he composed, he composed the songs that the choir sang as they led the people in worship. In fact, there are 11 psalms written by Asaph, Psalms 73 through 83, all written by Asaph. And one of the things that you'll note about these psalms is they're, they're not all bright, cheery songs. So when, when we come to church, we kind of expect some upbeat music, Right. I know last weekend when I was worshiping at our church in the Chicago area, Christ Community Church, we started with the joyful, joyful, we adore thee, an old hymn that we gave a, a band vamp to. And then we moved from that into uh, the Phil Wickham praise song, there's joy in the house of the Lord, and we're clapping and lifting hands, and that's kind of what you expect. But if your Bible's open to Psalm 77, let me read the opening words of this song that Asaph, the choir director, composed for the choir to sing when the people of God got together for worship. This is the song that was sung, beginning at verse 1 of Psalm 77. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was distressed, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. Now, in my church, when we read the scripture, uh, I usually say when I'm done, this is the word of the Lord. And everybody responds with, thanks be to God. So let's do that. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what do you think of this worship song? What if you came into church and the the band struck up a song with lyrics like this? So Asaph is obviously writing this song for people who are going through a difficult time and they're praying, they're crying out to God and it doesn't seem like God is listening. So what do you do? Where does lament begin? It begins with prayer. You keep on praying. I mean, take a look again at these opening verses. All of the phrases that suggest prayer. Verse one, I cried out to God. In fact, he says that twice. I cried out to God. Verse two, I sought the Lord. I stretched out untiring hands. Verse three, I groaned, I meditated. So Asaph says, if you're going through difficult times and it seems like God is not showing up, what do you do? You keep on praying. So when life hits the fan in big ways, or small, we must resolve to continue to pray. Uh, Mark Vrogop has written an excellent book on lament. It's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. Now, I read a lot of books, and I got to tell you, this is one of the best books I've, I've read over the last several years. Mark tells the story of his, his wife giving birth to a stillborn little girl. They named her Sylvia. And as Mark held the body of his beautiful but lifeless daughter in his hands, he was overwhelmed with grief. 
And it was a grief that lasted a long time, compounded by multiple miscarriages, even a, a false positive pregnancy. Mark says that this experience taught him the importance of talking to God about what he was going through. Don't stop praying. And he gives us a warning in dark clouds, deep mercy. Listen to this. He says, giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. God doesn't care. He doesn't hear. Nothing's going to change. Vrogab says, people who believe this stop praying. They give up. Well, the guy in Psalm 77, he doesn't stop praying. He doesn't give up. And in fact, he seems to ratchet up the intensity of his appeal to God. He doesn't just pray. He cries out to God. You see that in verse one? If you're prone to marking up your Bible circle, I cried out twice in verse one. Seth mentioned my book, Prayer Coach. I I, I wrote Prayer Coach because I noted that of all the books on my shelf having to do with prayer, many of them are theologically deep and mystical and whatever, but uh, very few of them give practical helps at how to pray. And so I wanted to write something really, really practical. And one of the things that I I, I teach uh, people to do in, in the book Prayer Coach is to pray with intensity, pray with passion. You know, we, we see this exemplified in the Bible. You know, Jacob, remember the story of Jacob wrestled all night with God in prayer. Or the story of Hannah. Hannah wanted to become pregnant and she was without child and she went to the tabernacle and she prayed with such emotion that Eli, the priest, thought she was drunk. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed with such intensity that he sweated great drops of blood. The church, the early church, undergoing persecution, got together to pray. And Luke tells us in the book of Acts, when they were done praying, the place where they had prayed shook. Imagine that. Imagine praying with such intensity that the place where you're meeting, where you're praying, shakes. It seems as if God sometimes waits to intervene on our behalf until he hears an earnestness in the way that we pray. Listen, friends, half-hearted casually voiced, brief snippets of prayer, they don't travel higher than the ceiling. If if we're serious about getting God's attention, we got to cry out to God like the psalmist did. Now, let, let me give you a couple of real practical suggestions here for adding some passion to your prayers, especially when you're praying prayers of lament. Two practical suggestions. First, change your posture. Change the posture with which you pray. No slumping in your chair, legs crossed, sipping a cup of coffee while you pray. It's one of my pet peeves when I'm in a small group especially and you've been studying the Bible together and you close in a word of prayer and people are sitting there kind of lounging. Really? You know, try getting on your knees. You know, try walking around. Pacing always seems to add energy to prayers. Try lifting your hands up. You know, the psalmist says in verse two, I stretched out untiring hands. Try lying face down. You know, the carpet of your home. You ever done that? You know, I love reading through the Old Testament book of of Numbers, the story of Moses' leadership as he delivered God's people from slavery. And they were a group of knuckleheads. You know, they were constantly contesting Moses' leadership. And every time 
there was conflict. What did Moses do? He dropped to his face. He did a face plant, face down before God, and he prayed. You ever done that? You ever been so so exercised about some desperate situation in your life that you got on the floor and you just laid spread eagle and you bared your soul to the Lord? Second suggestion, raise your voice. You know, when the psalmist says he cried out to God, and by the way, that is a common expression in the psalms. You know, it means that he added some volume to his prayers. You know, very infrequently do you read in the Psalms something about praying. You you read about crying out, calling out to God, calling out. Uh, Sue and I love to hike in national parks. In fact, uh, this month alone, we've been out in the Tetons in Wyoming. We were uh, hiking with my daughter and her family, three young kids. I told my wife ahead of time, all we got to do is keep up with the four-year-old. So we managed, managed to do that for four days of hiking in Wyoming. And then this last week, uh, just before coming here, we, uh, we traveled up to Maine. First time ever at Bar Harbor in Acadia, beautiful national park. And one of the things I like to do while we're hiking in the outdoors is pray at the top of my lungs because you can do that. Nobody's listening right? And you just call out your, your purse. So when, when I'm hiking anywhere and, and praying, if I'm praying for my kids or I'm praying for my church or I'm praying for friends of mine who are in desperate situations, I'll pray at the top of my lungs. Now, just, just uh, one thing to take note of here. If, if you're going to do that, make sure nobody else is around. Uh, so not too long ago, we were hiking in the Smokies. And uh, we decided to take this uh, remote trail one day. You had to drive down a gravel road several miles just to get to the trailhead. And so we get to the trailhead and nobody's there. But as we start to enter the woods, three guys are coming out of the woods. And so we pass them on this narrow footbridge. And as we walk past, one of the guys says, well, if it isn't Jim Nicodem. And I look up, and this is a guy who used to work for me years ago, and he's now living on the West Coast, and I I run into him walking out of the woods of the Smoky Mountains. So all I could say is if you're going to cry out to the Lord in the middle of nowhere, make sure nobody's listening, okay? But when when you have an opportunity to do that, just pray at at the top of your lungs. How should we respond to hardships in our lives? Those times when it seems as if God is silent, we lament. How do you lament? First, you pray. You pray. And some of you are saying, try that. I did that and nothing happened. So now what? You pray some more. You pray. You don't quit. The psalmist never stopped praying. Let let me ask you a question this morning. What have you stopped praying about? What have you kind of thrown the towel in on? You just don't pray about it anymore because it seems as if God is not listening. Get back after it. Pray. Step two. And this is going to surprise you. Uh, Complain. Complain. Now, I I know that complain is not a positive word. And the Bible tells us we should give thanks in all circumstances of life. Which sounds like the opposite of complaining. But there's a lot of complaining in the Psalms of lament. And don't forget, a full third of the 150 Psalms are lament Psalms set to music sung by choirs at worship services. So it must be okay to complain to God in the right way. 
So take a look at how Asaph does this in Psalm 77. We're going to pick it up at verse 5. He says, I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked. Here comes the complaining. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? You got six pointed rhetorical questions. You know what a rhetorical question is? It's a question that doesn't expect an answer. A rhetorical question is more like an accusation. Asaph is saying here, God isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's, He's not acting loving. He's not keeping his promises. He's not showing me any mercy. The psalmist is complaining. Uh, in the early days of our marriage, uh, my wife did a lot of needlework. And uh, every time she would get pregnant, we've got three kids, and she became pregnant with each, she would begin one of those needlework samplers so that by the time the baby was born, there would be a, a sampler in their honor. And as she started uh, to get into the world of stitching, she discovered that there are groups out there of you know, mostly women that gathered together to uh, stitch and talk, and they've got an official name, they're called Stitch and complain groups. <clears throat> I thought Seth might not invite me back if I said, you know. So these S&B groups, okay, in fact, they're all over the world. If you Google it, you'll find that there are S&B groups in 289 cities around the world. And this is, this, you know, this is Google, so it's got to be true, right? And And they get together and they, you know, they do whatever the stitchery is and they talk and they complain. They complain. Now, I don't think Asaph would advocate joining an S&B group. Not because he wasn't into needlework, but because he wasn't into complaining just for the sake of complaining. It wasn't a recreational activity for him. It wasn't something you did just because you were hanging out with friends. No, it is something you did in order to process the difficult stuff going on in your life. You would take it to God. You'd talk to God about it. And I got a men's group that I'm, I'm part of on Thursday mornings. We meet at a lo- local coffee shop. And, and about half the time, uh, my opening icebreaker each time we get together is, hey guys, let's do the, the high-low thing, okay? From the last week of your life, tell us about one high and one low. We call this the, the happy crappy opener, all right? So something really good and something really bad. Why would we do that? Why would we talk about the bad stuff, the lows in our lives? Because as soon as we're done voicing our complaints, we go to prayer. We take it to God and we intercede for each other. See, this, this is how you, you process your complaint. You, you talk to God about it. You bring all those lows to him. Complaining can be cathartic as long as we don't get stuck there. In Mark Vrogop's book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, he tells the story of a friend who shared with him his struggle with same-sex attraction. Let me read to you what Mark writes. He says, he was discouraged with the Christian counseling he had received. 
From his perspective, well-meaning counselors had worked with him to change only his behavior. And that was always a temporary fix. But before long, he would fall back into the same pattern of sinful behavior. And he felt like God had forgotten him. He struggled with why, why God allowed some very painful circumstances in his childhood to occur. He battled anger with his parents. He, he felt like God was always distant. His struggle was not only with same-sex attraction, but also with God. I remember the look in his eyes when I told him, well, it sounds like the lament psalms were written just for you. I encouraged him to tell God exactly how he was feeling. I challenged him to lay out his pain, his questions, his struggles before the Lord. I tried to help him see that not only could God handle his messy thoughts, God already knew them. The struggling man's questions were not a surprise to God. And slowly the the darkness began to lift in this brother's life. The struggle with same-sex attraction didn't vanish, but his sense of divine abandonment did. As he poured out his soul in lament, as he poured out his soul in lament, it opened his heart for God to apply healing grace in his life. The painful questions that once created a barrier between him and God now became the vehicle to draw him closer to the one who could change his heart. And God began a work of renewal in his life. And he started to change. And complaint was part of that journey. After telling this story, Mark goes on to uh, recommend the practice of writing out a list, actually sitting down and writing out a list of our complaints and then talking to God about them. He says that pain tends to make, make us myopic. We become so focused on our problem that nothing else matters. We, we become preoccupied with the weight of our sorrows and the unfairness of life and the fear that we're, we're never going to be happy again. And if this goes unchecked, Mark says, it creates a self-absorbed emotional downward spiral. But when we sit down and we write out our complaints and then we talk to God about them, they lose their hold on us. Mark says you probably even find yourself occasionally laughing at some of the silly things you put on the list. When you finally write your complaints out and you see them in black and white, Say, oh my goodness. So complaining the right way to God can help us see ourselves and our situations more clearly. You get it? Now in my church, I say get it. People say got it. I say good and we move on. That's how I know they're still awake. You get it? Good. Good. Here's step three. Rehearse. Rehearse. Back to Psalm 77 one more time. Pick it up at verse 10. Then I thought to this, I will appeal the years when the most high stretched out his right hand. I will remember, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Now the key word in this paragraph is the word remember. So if your Bible is open in front of you, just circle that word, remember, twice in verse 11. This word, this verb, remember, can also be translated make mention of. So when Asaph says, I will remember, he's not just talking about bringing uh, things that God has done in the past to mind. 
He's talking about bringing them to mind and then speaking them, making mention of them, rehearsing them, if you would. So what is it we're supposed to rehearse? Three things. First, God's mighty deeds. God's mighty deeds. Verses 11 and 12. Again, if you're an underliner or you circle in your Bible, the deeds of the Lord, he speaks of his miracles in times past, his works, and then a second mention of his mighty deeds. So he begins by rehearsing what God has done, not just in the world at large, but in his own life, God's mighty deeds. The psalmist is turning a corner here, friends. Okay, in the first part of the psalm, it's all about how bad life is for him. You know, and God doesn't seem to care about him. But now he takes the spotlight off of himself and his woes, and he turns the spotlight on God. God's mighty deeds. Here's an interesting pattern to note in Psalm 77. And you might want to jot this in the margin of your Bible. In the opening six verses, the psalmist uses the first person, personal pronoun, 18 times. And he speaks of God six times. So 18 times, it's I, 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 or me, me, me. And then God six times. But in the last eight verses of the psalm, there are no first person pronouns. No I, no me, and God is mentioned 21 times. So that the psalmist turns a corner in his lament. He deliberately shifts the focus from himself to God. And he starts by rehearsing God's mighty deeds. Now, our staff at Christ Community Church, uh, we gather twice a week for about an hour of prayer each time. There's a hundred and some staff at the church. And uh, about every second or third time we get together, I will say to them, hey, before we throw out requests for our areas of ministry, let's just do some God sightings. And what I mean by God sightings is how have you seen God show up in your life or in your area of ministry over the last week or two? How's God shown up? And people will begin to tell stories about answers to prayer or someone's life that's been recently transformed or some breakthrough in their area of ministry. And it is hard to turn that spigot off once we get going. You know, we'll go for half an hour, just God sightings. Rehearsing the mighty deeds of God. I'd recommend this God sightings exercise for you. Where, where have you seen God show up in your life recently? Where have you seen God show up in your life recently? You can rehearse this on your own, in your own quiet time as you meet with God. If you're a journaler, you could write down some of these God sightings. You you could do this as a family. If you're a family of Christ followers, every once in a while at the dinner table, say, hey, let's do God sightings. How have you guys seen God show up in your life in the last week or two? If you're a community group, a small group leader, this is something you could do with with your group. God sightings. How have we seen God show up? God's mighty deeds. The second thing to rehearse is God's attributes. Okay, go back to Psalm 77 with me. We're going to pick it up now where we left off at verse 13. And again, if you're marking up your Bible, just circle the attributes of God that you see in the next few few verses. Verse 13, your ways, God, are holy. Circle holy. What God is as great as our God? Circle great. 
You're the God who performs miracles. You display your power, circle power, among all the peoples. With your mighty arms, circle mighty, you redeemed your people, circle redeemed. You redeemed the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. You you see all the attributes of God, his character traits in these verses. He's holy, verse 13, which means he's, he's perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. So if you're thinking that God's silence is him dropping the ball, like he's being inattentive to you, think again. God doesn't make mistakes. He's holy. He's perfect. And if you think, well, maybe God isn't responding because he can't do anything about my situation, well, guess again, because he's powerful, he's mighty. You see that in these verses? It's great power, mighty you know, I, I'm reminded of the time that Jesus is in a boat on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples and a storm comes out of nowhere. I was just in, in Israel a couple of months ago with a group from Christ Community and we had a hotel on the Sea of Galilee and one night out of nowhere we saw a storm come up. It was terrifying. And these fishermen, these seasoned seamen, they were scared out of their minds. And Jesus is asleep in the boat and they wake him up. Don't you care? And he stands up, Jesus stands up. And with a word, he, he silences the wind and the waves. And they're awestruck by his power, by his power. And if you're facing difficult circumstances, Jesus can handle it. And our God is compassionate. I I pick up compassionate from verse 15. He says, with your mighty arm, you redeemed your people. This is the story of God delivering his people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Exodus 2 verse 25 says, God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God is concerned for his people. He sees what's going on in our lives and he cares So it's helpful to rehearse God's compassion along with his other attributes as we're lamenting our difficult circumstances. You rehearse God's mighty deeds. You rehearse God's attributes. By by the way, if you're looking for a resource in this regard, uh, you could download Christ Community Church's mobile app. And one of the things we put on our mobile app, it's free, Uh, is a list of 250 attributes by which God goes in Scripture. 250 attributes, characteristics, names, titles by which God goes in his holy word. So you rehearse, you learn to rehearse. This is a, a great resource. You, you know, I, in my prayer time, I'll go to that list and I'll pick two or three things off the list and I'll pray them back to God. I will just rehearse who God is. And sometimes I hear people pray, God, I just praise you for who you are. (laughs) Who is he? Tell him who he is. Use his attributes. Pray him back to God. So one last thing, a third thing that we rehearse is God's salvation. God's salvation. So the psalmist has just alluded to the time that God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. But uh, no sooner were they out from under Pharaoh's thumb. You remember what happened. Uh, The Israelites leave and Pharaoh gets to thinking. He's just lost all his cheap labor. And so he decides to go after them and retrieve them. He sends his army out to bring them back. And they're up against the Red Sea. There's no going forward. And Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them. And they cry out to God. 
Moses puts his staff over the water and the waters part and there's a path and they cross on dry ground. And when Pharaoh's army tries to follow, the waters come and drown the army. God's deliverance. So when Old Testament people, when they read Psalm 77, you know, when they were going through difficult circumstances, they rehearsed the fact that in times past, God has shown that he's a rescuing, a redeeming, a saving God. Remember what he did at the Red Sea. Now, when New Testament believers read Psalm 77, when you sit down and read Psalm 77, you rehearse a much bigger salvation than what happened at the Red Sea. God's rescue from sin and death and Satan and hell. You know, the Bible says that there was a time when we were all going our own way. You know, we were doing our thing instead of God's thing. There are things God says we should do and we weren't doing them and there are things he says we shouldn't do and we do them. The Bible calls this sin and it says the wages of sin is death. See, if God's the giver of life, if he's the source of all life and you, you thumb your nose at almighty God, you, you alienate yourself, you unplug from almighty God, the result is death. It begins with spiritual death, a broken relationship with God. That leads to physical death at the end of this life, which leads to eternal death unless something changes. But scripture says that God loves us so much that he sent his son and Jesus bore the penalty for our sins. The penalty is death. So Jesus took our death, the death we deserve to die. Jesus died on the cross for us. And he didn't stay dead. He was raised the third day. He's exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And he now, today, he gives forgiveness and new life to anyone who will surrender to him. Have you ever surrendered to Jesus? Is Jesus the Savior? Is he the king of your life? You know, if you've never done that, you could do that today. Surrender to Christ. Now, if you've already pledged your allegiance to Jesus, if you've already surrendered to him as Savior and King, then you need to rehearse the story of his salvation. He saved you. Rehearse that story again and again and again, especially when you're going through tough times. And if you say, well, you know, what good does it do to rehearse the fact that God saved me when I surrendered my life to him three months ago or six years ago or two decades ago? You know, how does that change my sucky circumstances today? Well, the Apostle Paul provides an answer to that question in Romans 8, verse 32. Paul says, a God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You follow Paul's logic there? He says, come on, if, if God gave his son for you, if Jesus laid down his life to save you from spiritual, physical, eternal death, do you really think that he doesn't care about your present day circumstances? That he doesn't give a fig about what you're going through? Really, do you think that? Come on. You know, every once in a while, I find myself singing the, the words of a popular Christian song from years ago. The, the words go like this. He didn't bring us this far to leave us. He didn't teach us to swim to let us drown. He didn't build his home in us to move away. He didn't lift us up to let us down. So God didn't save me to abandon me. 
So if you're in difficult straits today, if you've been praying and it seems like you've been getting the silent treatment from God because your difficult circumstances continue to persist, let let me remind you, he didn't bring you this far to leave you. He, He didn't build his home and you to move away. He didn't lift you up to let you down. He didn't give you Jesus, eternal life, just so that he he could then abandon you in the course of everyday life. What, What do we do when it seems as if God is silent when we're facing difficult circumstances? We learn to lament. Again, a third of the Psalms, Psalms of lament. How do you do that? You pray. You don't stop praying. You change your posture and you raise your voice. So you start praying with some intensity because God's waiting to hear if you really mean it. Secondly, you complain. And if it helps you, make out a list and you bear your soul to God and you say, God, this this sucks and this is awful. And And you lay it out before him. Bring it to the Father. And then you rehearse. You turn the corner. You rehearse God's mighty deeds. You rehearse God's attributes. You rehearse God's salvation. You get it? Good. Let me pray. Lord God, I know in a crowd this size, there are uh, many of us who could use the instructions of Asaph in Psalm 77 today. And the truth of the matter is we've come to church and we see people rejoicing around us and singing with gusto and our hearts, our hearts are hurting because of things we're going through or family members are going through. And so God, I pray that you would invite us into the, the practice of lament to bring our concerns to you, to know that you care deeply for us, to rehearse your mighty deeds in our lives, God to rehearse your attributes. You are holy, compassionate, good, caring, merciful. To rehearse your salvation, your great salvation in our lives. That the God who did not spare his own son but gave gave him up for us all, surely he will give us all things. Help us apply this word to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.